This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, I understand we have another farm story for Chit Chat this week. <laughs> but not from me. <laughs> <laughs> we had an interesting experience a week or so ago. Our, our three-year-old... We, being Julie and I, yes, yeah, sorry, thank you. Okay. Uh, Julie and I went to our three-year-old grandson's birthday party, Austin. And the party was held at a this bizarre combination of, like, low-budget amusement park and petting zoo. And... It was just, it's in the middle of Florida. It's hot. We're a long ways from the Gulf and breezes. It's just, it's just it, it was. Swampy? That's a good way of putting it. it, it, it was, <laughs> the sun was just beating down. It was 11. The party started at 11. There were, there were cupcakes and they melted in, in like 15 minutes. <laughs> so that was actually good for me. But little Austin. I don't know whether it was the heat or the people or whatever. He just, he was having none of it. None of the whole party thing. He just wanted to sit with his grandmother, who's Julie. And so she and I sat there and we talked with him. And there, all the other kids are playing and they're racing around and they're having a good time. And it's, you know, for, if you're five years old, it's not hot. No matter how hot it is, it's not hot. If you can just keep playing and having fun. And they're, there's all this stuff that you can go and feed the animals and do all this stuff. And Austin, he didn't want to do any of it for about an hour. And then all of a sudden I talked him into, let's go take this over here. And there are some goats over there and we can go feed the goats. And he's like, okay, we go feed the goats. So we took the stuff and he stood behind me as I put the stuff in my hand. I have never fed a goat in my life. I've, I only know people <laughs> who feed goats and fix broken legs. <laughs> I've, I've never actually done this before. So I put the food in my hand, and, and there's like a stampede of these ghosts, goats who I think are going to knock the fence down to get me, and they're sticking their head over, and I'm like, I can't look like a complete wuss in front of my three-year-old grandson. So I hold my hand out and then it, I'm tickled for a little while and then the food's gone. And I'm like, this is awesome. So I reached in and got some more and then Austin started doing it. And we were there for like 20 minutes, just feeding the goats and, and I would run back and get more food and Julie and he would, so the would food, feed them. Where was the food? Where was the food coming from? It was coming from the people. And so the, the parents bought a bunch of this food so that the kids could go and feed the, goats and and so all you of, bought the all you well bought someone the bought the food we from, didn't somebody bought the food from yes. the people who are running this zoo Correct. to make sure that this little petting zoo make sure that the goats are getting or the animals are getting like actual animal food and not like the cupcakes yes yes there were no okay. there was no cupcake feeding although i will say i did not know there was they both gave us lettuce and this other stuff and i thought 
I'm going to give him the lettuce. And so this one goat, he, he takes the lettuce and just like, he didn't, he didn't want anything to do with the lettuce. And I very quickly realized that was not for the goats. So then we, the we went around. It, but... Well, not when there's all this other stuff around. Yeah, they, so they knew better. Yeah. When, so when we're feeding the goats, then the other kids see us feeding the goats and they see that, you know, we're not being stampeded and they're not eating, chewing our hands off. So then all of a sudden everyone's feeding the goats. So we go over to another section and the other like really fun section for me was um, Austin and I go over and there are these, I don't know, they're, I don't know what kind of animals, they're like guinea pigs or something. You know, the, there's all these things that kind of look the same that sometimes kids have as pets. There's a bunch of them. So I, I threw a piece of lettuce in there and it was like a gang war broke out inside of there to get to that <laughs> lettuce. They were clawing at each other to get to it. And so Austin and I started tearing up small pieces and tossing it in. And that was like 10 minutes of just doing that. And every time it was the same. They never calmed down. They never felt like, okay, I've had my piece of lettuce. I'm going to be good. They were fighting for every single piece of lettuce. So... Then Austin started having fun, and then the party actually started. We had cake and all the other stuff started, and it was a typical party. So on the way home, Julie, who is the complete opposite of me, I would never think of sending a text message to someone with a picture of something like this, and Julie sends a message to Taylor. I don't even know what it said, but essentially, hey, we're feeding goats too kind of thing. Yeah, and something like that. She was sending me pictures of the birthday party and of you guys, like, feeding the different animals and stuff. Which started they were, a, they were adorable. a text message conversation back and forth. And I'm driving on the way back. And all of a sudden, Julie just starts howling. <laughs> and what was it that you had said, Taylor, in one of your messages? I said, well, that's a scam. They, <laughs> those people convinced you to, to buy food from them to pay for their animals, to feed their animals. <laughs> Which is exactly what happened, and uh, but it took none of the luster off the day for me. So it was it was no, really said, fun, and now I, I know what it's fun. like to <laughs> feed a goat. <laughs> I mean, you get to have fun, the kids get to have fun, and they get to have a load of feed. They feed, get Bill. their goats fed, and they make a profit on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's ingenious. So it was a fun yeah, day. I'm like, it sounds like it was fun. That will, this will, for listeners, this will probably be my only farm story ever. Well, but I don't know. As, I as, as she rubs her hands one. together evilly <laughs> and plots. <laughs> yeah, I could just see you putting something together. All right, so we do actually have a topic today, Taylor. What is our topic? So today's topic is on building out story ideas without getting stuck in the weeds. It's kind of a combo topic. And this is another of the questions that were posed to me on the Facebook group that we talked about last week. And these ones also came from Liv. I do have more, and there are more. We're going to cover them in the coming episodes. But it just seemed topical, sort of a good follow-up to last week's to, to go in this direction. So I'm going to go ahead and read the question, uh, more or less, as it was written again, and then we'll just discuss it and take it from there. Um, I'm a little concerned that I might not have as much valuable feedback to offer on this one, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. 
So the question is this. We all have different ways of gathering, creating, or reorganizing the beginnings of an idea. What are the steps you take to flesh them out? What are your mile markers for moving forward in the process of writing? This is similar to a discussion on plotting or pantsing, but I really want to know more about how you have enough to move in to the next step of ideation and how you avoid getting stuck in the weeds. So it's a really good question because this is sort of like, where do we start? What, what's the beginning, right? And I, it's a hard one to just like flat out say, this is how it is, because I feel like my idea process is sort of all over the place. Uh, only once have I ever been in a situation where I had the seed of an idea and I had to just, no, twice, <laughs> twice, <laughs> and I had to just grow that into a complete story. The first was with The Informationist, where I had a place that I wanted to write about and I didn't have anything. I didn't have characters or plot or uh, nothing. I, I didn't even understand about genre at that point. I just knew that I wanted to write about Equatorial Guinea. And I understood that books were supposed to be exciting, like Jason Bourne. So that was the first one. And then the second time that that happened was with the Liars series, where I basically just had this idea of feuding like an assassin family where everybody was capable of killing each other and often wanted to, but there was no plot, no, no anything. And I sort of like this idea that it was a single mom and, you know, what about the father? Like what happens? That That's all that I had. Right. And so that, that, those idea processes were very different than how the other books came to be because once I was sort of in the cycle of writing, I'd be about maybe halfway, two-thirds through a book, and I'd already be thinking about where I wanted to take the next one. And so by the time I got to the point of writing out the outline, or I should say the proposal for the next book, because that's what the contracts would require me to do, was send sort of an outline and then the first three chapters of the next book. By the time I got to that phase, I'd already done so much thinking about it that the ideas were sort of already somewhat in an existing state. So the two processes were a little bit different. I'm going to talk about the second one first, and that is where I would arrive to the idea the, the getting started part with already some ideas in place. The process of writing a book proposal or the option material actually was really beneficial in that it forced me to get those ideas into something coherent, something workable without getting stuck in the weeds. And that was because they forced me to create an outline. And that's 
where this comes into the decision of plotting or pantsing, right? I cannot really fully speak to pantsing a book, except on The Informationist, which I will in a minute. But by doing this in a format, the required sort of format, what it forced me to do was think through the entire story in terms of plot points. It didn't really have me fleshing out the characters, the depth of motivation, or all the really, the things that make a book a book. But it was outlining the story, and it was a sense of, here's the plot. Here's here's what happens. Here's so-and-so. And those were not super, super long. Maybe... I don't know. I'd have to go back and look, but I don't think they were more than, you know, 10, 15 pages or something like that. A double spaced Roman, I mean, times, New Times Roman 12, margin and a half on each side, not a lot of text on each page. So once, and then I'd have to write the first three chapters. And that was always so hard. The writing those first three chapters was harder almost than writing the rest of the book. Because I was writing them from not knowing really the full rest of the story and just having to create from scratch in a very small segment. So last week we talked about how I come back to the story and familiarize it and familiarize myself with it and all of that. But when you're starting those first three chapters, you don't have anything to familiarize yourself with with, and you don't even have the rest of the story to draw on to make sure that it's really, you're saying what you want it to say. So there's a really good chance that those three chapters are not even going to be the first three chapters in the next version, but you're just putting together something that your editor can look at and go, yeah, this has legs and take to their editorial committee and sign off on. So that process sort of forces the ideas You have no choice. You have to get those ideas grounded and in order. And then what I would do with that after I got the approval was basically sit down and tell myself the story. And by tell myself the story, I really mean tell. There's no scene setting. There's no nothing. It's like, so she goes to this place and she meets a guy And that guy tells her whatever. And that is what sets her off on finding this particular street. So she goes to that street. And when she gets to that street, she discovers. And so it's that kind of just really skeletonizing out the the story. And that sort of takes the whole idea process and expands it a little bit more. So maybe by the time that's done, I might have, you know, 40 or 50 pages of what happens. But the deeper things, the motivations, the emotions, the character's history, the only time the character's history of things is going to show up in those ideas and outline is when they are pertinent to the plot. So, so much of that is just developed in the story writing itself, actually writing the first draft. But what that outline slash telling myself the story does is it 
it builds me a roadmap. And I don't necessarily stick to it. A lot of times the ideas that show up in that roadmap are really dumb. They're basic. There's not enough conflict. The motivations are questionable. And so all of that has to be further developed in the first draft. But what that first rough outline does is it removes that I guess you could say the fear of the unknowns. Like, even if I don't know how that story is going to fully play out as I'm writing it, at least I know that it ties together. And if I get to a point where it is dumb, like, this is just stupid. What was I thinking putting this in here? I know that something has to replace it there. And I have to come up with that, but I don't have to come up with all of it, just that small segment until I get to the next portion that it just doesn't belong. So by the time I've got a first draft in back then, as, as I was doing it, it, the first draft would not be very clean. It would be humiliating if I was to show it to somebody, but because it was a complete story at that point, when I went back to the beginning for the second draft, I already had inside me the, or as I guess as we brought it up last week, I was in communication with the story. So I knew it. I felt it. And so there were no questions about later motives. There were no questions about how certain plot points tied together because those had all been resolved in writing the first draft. So coming into the second draft, I had a chance to pull out stuff that was unnecessary, deepen stuff that should that that had the potential to give it more weight, more meaning, more emotional depth, more texture, and clean up the writing to to. I guess, work towards elegance. And then by the time I got done with the third draft, I mean, the second draft, I could go back and do it again. And each subsequent draft would tighten it, tighten it, tighten it, and work out the kinks until I finally felt like I had something that I could send to my agent who'd point out, you know, what about this? This doesn't work, whatever. And I'd go back and fix those. And then it would go to my editor. And then we'd go through the editorial process, which is just really nitty gritty, fine tuning, all that same type of stuff. And then it move on to the copy editor and they clean up the grammar and stuff. So it was a very multi-step step process. And how I would know that I had enough to move to the next phase was when at that level of the process, the story was as complete as that level required it to be. Now with the informationist, I did not know how the story was going to play out when I started writing it because I didn't outline, I was pantsing it. And I, the informationist is a good story, it, but it's, it's good because it's so unique and it's good because it, it has a compelling character for those who care for that type of character. 
but it is not as good as it could have been plot wise and depth and all of that if a I knew had known what I was doing and and had understood how to get deep inside a character's head and B if I had plotted it out ahead of time to tie things together because as you go along in that way you you develop the story and then you realize oh, no that other thing doesn't work and then you have to go back and change that but that then then has ripple effects all these different ways but with the informationist I never faced this issue of, you know, do I have enough in these ideas to move to the next step? I just had, I want to write about this place. So I guess I'm going to need a character. So who is this character? All right. And I just started writing, you know, and I guess the innate story sense that I have told me, well, if she's going to Africa to look for somebody, then something would have happened to that person. So what happened to that person? And so that took me a step backwards. And so that's how the prologue came to be. Even though I rewrote it many times, the prologue, the basis of the prologue, the plot of the prologue is the same. And so I was like, okay. And then that was what happened. So she's looking for that guy. So then I know I want her to go to Germany because... That's another place that I know. So we're going to make him German. And it was very much like that. Just one step at a time, figuring it out and, and trying to find the clues for myself of how to, I know I want her to go to this next place. So how, how is she going to figure that out? Okay, this makes sense. And it was like that. Uh, so it was never this thing of, oh, I need to have all these ideas. I need to have everything figured out before I can start writing. It was just step by step. And then if I found a step that was out of place, I'd have to go back and get that inserted where it was supposed and then keep going. Just piecemeal, one chapter at a time. So I didn't have any concept about outlining. And when my agent told me that I needed to out, send in an outline for the next book for them to approve it as part of the option material, to me, that was so overwhelming. I thought it would just be easier to write the whole book and then see if they could just approve that instead. And she laughed at me and she's like, no, you know, it's really not a big deal. You just give them a basic, the, the basic gist of the story. And I was like, well, what, what if it changes? Like, I don't know until I get to the end. I don't know if it's going to be the same or not. And she's like, you don't worry about that. My other authors, they'll submit something, and in the end, the story might have nothing to do with that. It doesn't matter. You just need to get them this material so that they have something on paper that they can work with. And so she, like, talked me down, you know, get down off the wall. Come on, come on, come on. And so I, I did it, and and she's like, okay, this is great. Don't worry about it. This is going to be perfect. And And it was no big deal, you know. But that's what started me on this path of realizing how much easier it was to write a story when you had the the outline to work from because you didn't have to figure it out all of it out along the way you had sort of a map and taking it in those stages where first it's just a very basic you know maybe three paragraphs of this is what this story is about and you just kind of like expand it to make it look a little longer you know lots of white space and everything and then comes the hard part. All right, now I got that approved. I got to write the bleepity bleep thing. And so 
then starts, all right, let me just tell myself this story. And that way of doing it happened because, well, I didn't know how to write a second book. I didn't know if I could write a second book. And I was so scared of not being able to and, and having to give this money back that I absolutely needed to be able to pay the bills that I was just like, okay, I'm just going to, just going to tell myself the story and see if I can, I can put together a story. And that's how that happened. And I was like, Hey, this actually works pretty well. So that became my way of doing it is sit down and tell myself the story. And then along came the liars legacy thing where I, I was trying to, the, the, the publisher didn't want any more Monroe books. And they're like, what else do you got? And at this point, I'm just like throwing mud at a wall. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Never even, you know, I, I don't have a ton of ideas. I'm just trying to get through from one book to the next. And so that's where, you know, this idea of, you know, siblings, whatever came from. And so at that point, due to many complicating factors that I have written about at length, you can find them in my Patreon stuff that I'm not going to get into it here. Um, I basically had to write and create from scratch a whole new series before I could even get a publisher to look at it. So it was, it was starting over and it, unlike with the informationist, I did not even have a place that I wanted to write about nothing. And so it took a few false starts before I finally had the right tone, the right story to go with these characters, the, the depth that was necessary for it. But it never became a, a case of, I don't have enough ideas to move forward because I would still try and build out the story in very, very rough skeletal uh, dashes, just the bare bones so that I'd have a map to move forward with and then just start building it out. So I don't know if you've ever seen that meme, um, but it's, it's a drawing where it's a drawing of a horse and the back half, the one half of the horse is, looks like a very detailed drawing of a horse. And then it just devolves almost into a stick figure as you get to the other half. And I think the meme goes something like when they ask if there's any way, if you could do it cheaper. So <laughs> it's, it's funny in context, but in many ways, the writing process of taking ideas and massaging them and growing them layer through layer through layer looks a lot like that horse, but it starts off with the, the stick figure part and then gradually moves over into the very, very well-drawn one. So I think for me, I never want to get myself in a situation of, oh, I just need a little bit more research. I just need to develop this idea a little bit more. It is sit down and write. And as you write, it is very field of dreamsy. If you build it, they will come. If you write it, it will come. Now, there is a dog leg track to all of that. And that is, as you're in, as I'm in that writing process, 
It is not unusual for one idea to spawn another. And I can get very, very wordy in trying to describe an emotion or a thing or a motivation or how information comes together. And because I don't think in words, I think in 3D, like a pictures, right? Like in a, in everything all at once, these concepts all at once, I, I will understand what I'm trying to write from so many different levels at the same time that I, I will get stuck trying to communicate all of that on the page. And to me, when someone says, how do you avoid getting stuck in the weeds? Those are my weeds. But I know that weeds will mean different things for different people. Because I've never had the issue of getting bogged down with too many ideas cluttering up and not knowing which direction to take a story. Those have never been my weeds. So I don't really have the ability to speak educatedly on those. Like I don't speak from experience on that, but I do speak from experience on the weeds mucking up the page. And I, I do spend a lot of time trying to get through those weeds, but it's not on the grand scale. It's on a page by page basis. And a lot of times getting through it means just chopping them all down and getting rid of it and going, it's not necessary. And just, isolating it down to its most um, critical point. What does the reader actually really need to know? And a lot of times for me, those those weeds, that muck that, that gets all confusing on the page right there is because I'm trying to head off all the many directions that the reader's mind might go, why didn't she do this? How did she assume that? I don't want my editor coming back and saying, well, how did she know that was the path to follow? Why did she come to that conclusion? And so for me, the weeds are answering all of those questions on the page so that I don't get a reader putting a one-star review saying that didn't make any sense, right? I'm trying to make it make so much sense on the page that it gets me out of trouble, but it creates a whole other layer of trouble of just too much. And so sometimes I have to write, you know, 5,000 words to be able to get 500 that actually say what I'm trying to say in a concise way without wandering off into multiple directions. And that's actually something I want to talk about on an upcoming episode about too many words versus you know, saying something, few words can actually hold a lot of power. So that's, those are my mile markers in the process of writing is idea, basic idea, or if I've been thinking about it for a while, a lot of ideas of how things will fit and tie together, get them into a basic skeletal structure of this is more or less the plot of the story. Take that and turn it into a, I'm now I'm going to tell myself the story and then take that and start building a first draft that sort of fleshes it out. So with each one of those stages, the ideas grow and grow and grow. And it does help me keep from spinning off in multiple directions, which is very easy to do when your mind works that way. And, and it keeps it focused. So that is that is my process. It doesn't mean that I don't ever get stuck in the weeds. Uh, the 
Liar's legacy in particular was just brutal for weediness and trying to find my way through them. And, and I just had to just hack at it day after day, after day, after day, after day, trying to just find my own path through it. Uh, because at that, with that book, the, even my skeletal structure wasn't very helpful. And I, and I wrote about that in the very long novella when I was talking about when my brain broke, because it was this case of, I had, I had a, when you have a character, well, I'll just call him character X, right? It's, it's a, a character in a book that is driving the plot, but nobody knows who they really are. It's a mystery. And their, their decisions, their choices are felt everywhere in the story, but you can never actually see their point of view, right? So it's a character X and you've got to somehow convey their point of view through the actions and things that keep showing up and show how the characters figure out what that character X is thinking, doing the strings they're pulling, whatever. And Liar's Legacy had three of those. So it was just a nightmare trying to pull it all together in a way that made sense, was not contrived, felt organic to the characters' choices and decisions, still let the characters breathe on the page and didn't feel like they were being yanked, yanked along by a plot and make it completely invisible to the reader. So that, that was just insanity. And I hope to God I never do that again. But in that, so in that case, that book was pure weeds and it almost killed me. So don't do that. <laughs> That's my <laughs> advice for not getting stuck in those. Weeds. Just don't do it. Don't go there. Avoid that marsh. Um, but yeah, so that those are my markers. Those that that's how I move forward in the process of writing. All right, so a couple points here. One is your use of the weed, the word weeds throughout all of that was was brilliant. And you know, you're you're talking about getting so deep in the weeds and then hacking your way through the weeds and then you're in the marsh. And <laughs> I love the way you just kept incorporating that phrase or that that word in there. And I learned a lot from this, but the most specific thing that I learned was we've talked occasionally about your tendency to overwrite. And the way you explained it here, the way you get yourself into the weeds is by over-explaining so that you can then pare that down, but you have absolute confidence that the reader will know why your point of view character is doing what they're doing. I'd never... I'd never grasped that before from your overwriting process. So that was that was really cool insight to, to Yeah, okay. So I guess having that pointed out to me, when I wrote overwrite, it's generally not over description. I don't spend a lot of time over describing, you know, the places or the the what we call what I've called I don't know, when people are walking from here to there, just the pointless stuff, right? I, that's not where my overwriting comes from. My overwriting comes from spending too much time inside the characters' heads or creating scenes that don't fully, like, they exist because I think that they're necessary in order to get a, convey what's going on, but ultimately they just go on too long and they don't end where they should. I've gotten better at that, a lot better at that, at just cutting out huge swaths of information going, no, not necessary. We can, you know, not encapsulate that, recap it or whatever um, 
in a paragraph later to say what happened without having to actually show all the stuff that happened. And that will just shave another 2000 words off this book. Uh, also repetitions. Like sometimes I will, when, when you get, when you're deep into a hundred thousand words, you know that you might've earlier explained that a character feels a certain way about something and then not realize that when you explain it again, you know, 10,000 words later and after that, another 20,000 words later that the reader didn't forget. It's just been six months since you said it the first time. So you're good. You can delete the next two instances, right? So when you're, when you're writing it, sometimes I will end up doubling up or repeating ideas that I think are really important that the reader needs to know simply because they're important to me that the reader knows them without realizing how they will come across when you're just reading it straight through as a book because of the length of time that it takes to get me from beginning to end. So those are the types of things that I will clean up and delete on subsequent passes because I can't see them in the earlier drafts because of how much time it takes to get from one chapter to the next. All right. Well, uh, listeners may be surprised to learn that we're at uh, we're at 36 minutes now. You won't be surprised by that. But before we started this, Taylor said, I may not have enough for a whole show. <laughs> yes, I did say that. <laughs> and yes, you did have enough for a whole show. So uh, again, thank it you. Was very, it was very weedy. <laughs> very, very weedy indeed. Again, thank you, uh, Liv, for sending in the question. And uh, thank you to everybody who sent in questions to Taylor in the Taylor Stevens fan club group in Facebook and or her Patreon page. So, I mean, this really helps us to design shows that will work for, for you guys and, and help to answer the questions that you want as opposed to just trying to guess at uh, what we think you'd like to hear about. So thank you for those questions. Uh, Taylor, thank you for the, for the insight today. And thank you all for listening. We will be back again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>